This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hi, I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO at the Australian Museum, and today I'm going to take you on a journey looking inside the Australian Museum. You'll hear about our extraordinary collection, which has more than 18 and a half million different objects and species, and also about our scientific research. The collection and our floor exhibitions are looked after by some 300 staff, and sitting opposite me today is one of the most important of those. It's the director of the Australian Museum Research Institute, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. That's great. Well, look, we're going to have a great conversation, which I'm sure the listeners are going to just love today, because apart from... uh, leading the Australian Museum Research Institute, which is a role you've had for almost a year now. You're also a wildlife geneticist. Can you tell tell us what a wildlife geneticist does? <laughs> uh, that, yes, it, it's... Uh, well, I think that I have, when you count both of them, the two best jobs in the world. Leading the Research Institute is incredible and something I never thought that I would be doing. But being a wildlife geneticist is also pretty amazing. And that effectively... It's a very broad title. It means that I look at the DNA of pretty much any species of animal. So wildlife in our world here at the Australian Museum basically means all animals, but not typically plants. And um, that also kind of excludes humans. So wildlife genetics, anything anything you can think of out there in the wild. Now, um, we, we know why humans want to know about their DNA because it helps us understand why we are the way we are and maybe can help us with our medical conditions. But why, why do we need to know animals' DNA? There's so many reasons why you'd want to know about animal DNA. Uh, the obvious ones might be that you can understand how diverse a population is. And through those, those types of information, you can then understand if there are certain ones that need to be conserved uh, as opposed to others, if, if um, there, there's how, how things are related to each other at the DNA level. We're all related when, when you come down to it. We all have a common ancestor of a multicellular organism. And so we all actually share a lot of DNA. I've um, never invited that ancestor over. <laughs> Is that a relative I don't want to know? Only after a, a very long day, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're actually all related at the molecular level. Sure. And, um, and DNA can be very informative in, in that sense because it helps us understand how things are related and how deeply they're related. Now you have really spearheaded a project which has come to global attention and that is sequencing the DNA of the koala for the first time and you did that I I think as part of a consortium. What was that called? The Koala Genome Consortium, very aptly named I suppose and that's a really exciting project because it's something that is uh, it's multidisciplinary, so we, we're working with colleagues from all around Australia to start with, but now we have welcomed a few international collaborators, which is very exciting. It's also really exciting for a museum to be involved in spearheading a really big project like that that hadn't really been done um, at that level at a museum in Australia before. Now, the koala is one of our iconic species, obviously. People love koalas. It's sort of like the kangaroo and the emu. Uh, we all, I think Australians like to think of themselves as fuzzy koalas sometimes when we travel. So we love this 
this animal, but it is under threat, isn't it? Yes, it's a, they're really interesting little creatures too. They have no close relatives, so their closest relative is living relative is the wombat. There used to be other species that the, went. The closest relative is the wombat? Yes, that's right. Um, and they're very distant. They're millions and millions of years since they've shared a common ancestor. Right. So, so they have no other... There's no other species of koala. So you, it is what it is. And so coming with that, uh, we, because we love them so much, they, they, sometimes we think of them as honorary humans, really. They're, they're big, long limbs and they're big eyes and, and they're, they're quite sedate, really. Um, because of the, they have no close relatives, it, it is really important to understand how to conserve them. And, uh, and population genetics is very important in that way so that we can understand what is the genetic diversity of each population, ensure that we're maximising that diversity so we don't inadvertently lose a, lose a whole chunk of the population and with that might be some adaptive potential. So an example that I often use is the Tasmanian devil, for example. They were isolated on an island for a long time and as a, a consequence, one of the things that happened is that they have very low diversity in their immune genes and they have this very well-characterised um, transmissible cancer that causes the facial tumour that, that we, we know from those terrible photos that causes them to die effectively from starvation. And um, because they have no... One, one um, hypothesis is that due to no immune gene diversity, when this novel, unusual cancer came along, they didn't really have any um, response to it. And so we really don't want koalas to, to end up in the same way, particularly through things that humans might be might be introducing through habitat loss or roads or dogs. Is this how chlamydia got into the koala population? I actually can't answer that question because we actually don't know yet, but it is a, it is a possibility that it had been introduced via um, domesticated animals to Australia, but it may have been here much, much longer. And so the, gen the genome is really important because we can understand the genetic basis of how they might react to a disease. So we can again understand at the molecular level what is really important when, when they're working through things like perhaps a vaccine for chlamydia, for example. How big is the koala genome? Uh, it's a, the same size as humans, roughly. Wow. So it, it's quite big. <laughs> um, and so, so it is a lot of work because it is quite a large genome. To put it in perspective, the human genome cost billions and billions of dollars and it took over 10 years to put together. And um, the, it, the human, what we know about humans is actually um, quite useful for translating to other animals because we share a lot of DNA in common, as I mentioned earlier. And however, because koalas don't have any close ancestors who've had their genome sequenced, there's only three other marsupials that have been done to date. What, what are they? Those are the Tamar wallaby, so the first kangaroo, um, the uh, American opossum, so that's a marsupial from South America and, and North America, and the Tasmanian devil. So those are the three that have been done to date. So you've done this initial work by sequencing the DNA, but you're continuing, I know, with this work. What are you doing now? So we're looking at uh, sequencing technology evolves incredibly fast, uh, even faster than computing technology. If you if you can kind of, it's hard to keep track of the latest phones and the latest um, to do devices that can help you do your work. DNA technology evolves even quicker, and so we've had the fortune of being able to do some really new DNA sequencing methods, um, which give us really really long reads of DNA, and that's what we're doing at the moment, and that's going to give us a really incredible genome and that's helpful for things like the immune genes which are actually expanded gene families they probably started off with a single version a long time ago and have expanded so they're 
what they look like on the chromosome, for example, is um, pieces of DNA repeated over and over and over again, but they're all slightly different because they have a, all have a slightly different function. But when you sequence them, they end up all jumbled up because they all look similar enough that it's hard to know exactly where they go in the sequence. So this new technology actually sequences big, big, big long strings of DNA, almost like they are on the chromosome. And that means that we don't have to assemble so much and we can get a really good idea of where the immune genes sit in relation to each other so and how this, many there are. So will this work, Rebecca, actually help save the koala? We, yes, we very much hope so. We, the more information, the better, really, to understand how diverse they are, what kind of diversity we need to maintain going forward, what their immune genes look like, um, how this would actually interact with any um, vaccines in development. Some of our collaborators are quite involved in chlamydial vaccine development. And they also have this retrovirus, which is um, it, it's a, a, a virus that actually jumps into the genome and then disrupts the DNA around it. So we're trying to understand what this retrovirus is doing at, at the, the genome level in koalas because it's actually happening in real time, which is quite unusual. We will have retroviruses in our genome and they jump into our DNA and then they just kind of sit there and do nothing. And, and I think it's estimated about 8% of our DNA is viruses that have jumped in and then just kind of died. But this one is actually appears to be active. I and mean, to do this work, it must cost money more than sort of a normal allocation to a museum. Where do you get that funding? Look, it's a great question and it's a, science funding is a tough environment for sure. So we've been very fortunate for things like the Koala Genome Project, for example. We've had funding from a number of sources. So places like Bioplatforms Australia, who are a federally funded organisation who allow us to access infrastructure like DNA sequences. Uh, we have been very fortunate to receive funding from the Australian Museum Foundation which is philanthropic gifts and donations. And we've also received a number of other grants to do specialty projects on the koala, for example. And um, for our other wildlife genomics work, we, we receive similar grants, um, donations and other contract work to, f to fund that type of work, which is a little out of the ordinary. And some organisations like Customs and Quarantine who use the facilities actually pay fees too. So you're actually like operating a mini consulting service on the side. That's right. They, they pay for our expertise and to access the, the specialty infrastructure that we have for us to produce those types of results. Now, I know that one of the unusual things about you and one of your collaborators there is that you're both forensically qualified. Now, I've watched CSI on television, like a lot of people. What does that actually mean? Oh, uh, yes. So we're forensically qualified, which is not something, again, you might typically think of at a museum. We're forensically qualified in wildlife forensics. And so that is, again, um, what, we, what wildlife forensics means in our world here at the Australian Museum is that we might get a sample brought into us that's, uh, say, a seized bird egg or something. Do you mean by customs or quarantine? Could be by customs, could be by quarantine. So when we see those people being inspected at the airport, it actually does mean something. Uh, yes, yes, indeed, and it's very important. So um, it's uh, sadly not, not uncommon for us to be brought in um, samples that might be from an endangered species. So that's, there's a lot of legislation around protecting illegal trade of endangered species because, of course, we want to keep them alive and not keep, put them in the illegal trade. But also quarantine is, is um, important to remember because 
things that are being brought in illegally are going outside of the normal channels of, of understanding if there's any potential infectious diseases and introduce species risk with, with that type of introduction. So you can actually go to court and give evidence based yeah. around the research work you do. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's something that's really special about places like museums and other collecting institutions because we have the scientific expertise and um, so, so my background in genetics has allowed me to understand how things are related based on their DNA. But what we have here at the museum is the most extraordinary natural science collection of animals and tissues that relate to those animals that I can draw upon as my reference material. How many DNA samples do you have in that fridge? Yeah. I know I've seen in there. I've seen literally tens of thousands of test tubes. We have oh, about 100,000. So it's fairly small compared to most of our other collections and it's because it's a much younger collection than the rest of the extraordinary things so it, we have here. So it's extraordinary. Once upon a time a specimen would be an actual example of a particular species, but now it's the DNA samples that become the specimens well. well. Yes, ideally your best specimen has both. So, so your best specimen has your entire body still intact, um, possibly a skeleton if it's a vertebrate, for example, and also it has um, a, a DNA sample or a tissue sample that's taken from that individual. So the best ones have all three. Now, in your work with Customs and Quarantine, looking at these illegally imported or exported species, what's the most extraordinary thing you've come across? Oh, oh gosh, it's they're always unusual. They're always... I mean, I know you get a lot of birds. We through. do get a lot of birds. Um, it's extraordinary where someone can keep an egg on their body, isn't it? People are very creative about where they might um, illegally transport wildlife, um, and in their underwear. It helps to keep them warm, to keep them alive. <laughs> so uh, no warmer place than in your underwear, I suppose. Uh, you might also. Uh, be delicate about those areas because you don't want to crack these eggs that you're transporting. People do all sorts of strange things um, from transporting things in ground coffee to in their underpants to strap to their legs. To I mean, but you've also picked up uh, very um, rare objects as well and also things that are completely illegal to trade, like rhino horn. Yeah, so um, it is sometimes, sometimes you just think, man, how did they even get hold of this specimen? These things that you can almost count the number of these things in the wild on a couple of hands. And it's it's really quite sobering and, and quite sad that the people are trading things because basically they can make a few dollars out of it and or, of, or a lot of dollars. In and of course, cases. importing or exporting ivory is also illegal now, correct? It, that is correct, yes. And so, but I know you've got a lot of specimens that come in from time to time, even jewellery. Yes, yes. Um, all sorts of things are carved out of ivory. I think it's a, um, a desirable substance because you can work it to carve all sorts of things into it. Um, but I, I personally prefer to see it on the elephant. <laughs> it looks yeah, good on the elephant. It does, doesn't it? But what if you've got a historic object made out of ivory? That is a good question. So if you can demonstrate that it's pre-convention, so if, if you can demonstrate that the ivory is collected before the the endangered species legislation came into force, then it is legal to keep as antique ivory. Now, Rebecca, I could keep talking to you forever and I wanted to talk to you all about AMRI in general and women in science because, of course, you're the first woman to lead the Australian Museum Research Institute, but we're going to have to keep that for another day. Rebecca Johnson, it's been fantastic to have you on the Australian Museum podcast. 
This has been an Australian Museum podcast.